Let's say you have your Hebrew Bible in front of you, you open Exodus 20, what do you see? You see a text looking like that, lots of things inside. You can clearly see that this one has no vowels, no dots. Ah, huh? no dots. Welcome to episode one of the Bible in Obri. This show is slated to be a weekly show of an undetermined length, but normally one to two hours, in which I will be discussing, well, essentially everything having to do with the Bible, and most specifically focusing on linguistic issues, thus the title, Bible in Obri. Uh, however, I won't be discussing only linguistic issues. The thing is, it's going to end up coming back to that time and time again. And hopefully by the time I'm done with this show, you'll understand why in the articles I've written, in the blogs I've started producing and have been hung up now on, in the countless number of documents of varying types that I still haven't even been able to finish. Hopefully you'll understand better why there is this constancy of a linguistic issue in the so-called Old Testament, in the so-called New Testament, or the earlier and latter scriptures, or the BC texts versus the AD texts. To try to provide some context to a lot of what I'm going to be doing from this point forward. I did want to start today with discussing epistemology. And for those who aren't very familiar with the defin uh, definition of epistemology, I'm going to be reading from a lengthy document provided by uh, Princeton, or no, Stanford Educational Department. I've pre-read a great deal of this document, and I think it makes the issues really clear why we should be concerned with our epistemology, what epistemology is, and how it's so vital. You'll, you probably have listened to a debate, maybe more than a lecture, a debate in, in which one side will say something having to do with the epistemology of the other side. They may challenge the other side based on their epistemology. This is something that debaters know to use as a challenge because of how important one's epistemology is. And all the academics out there that most of us have, at least in the past, I would hope not as much at the present, but at least in the past, these are the people that we got a great deal of our information from. These are the people that helped us to form a lot of opinions that tended to, in many cases, get us nowhere. Those people know very well what epistemology is, and they typically know very well what their epistemology is, and what the epistemology is of others, why they don't spend more time 
talking about this, helping us to understand that. Because when, when we understand an epistemology, it, it helps give us a diving board to, to know which direction we want to go in and how deep we need to go. And the fact that out of all the teachers and probably the most respected academics and intellectuals in Christendom and out of Christendom today, out of all those that I have listened to or read, not one that I can bring to mind has really sufficiently gone into and helped me understand what my epistemology, why do I believe what I do and act on it? Because we all act on beliefs. We do not act on something that we do not believe. It's the reason that everybody tends to get in their cars almost every day and go out driving at high speeds for long distances because you're acting on the belief that your vehicle will not throw its tires at 60, 70 miles an hour. You're acting on the belief that there is not a man with a rocket launcher waiting at the end of your block uh, to fire at your car, acting on the belief that your car is reliable and that the roads are at least safe enough to take the chance of using your car to get to work or the groceries or pick up the kids or whatever. That's what we do. We tend to act on beliefs, but our beliefs have an epistemology connected to them. And that's what I would like to discuss a little bit so we can understand where I'm coming from uh, epistemologically concerning the Bible and why I spend the sort of inordinate time that I do studying the Bible in Obrey. And I hope over the course of these shows that I will be able to not only give you a better understanding of what my present understanding and perspective of Obrey is, but I hope I will also equip you with a, a good working knowledge of it yourself. This is something else that we'll see why as we discuss epistemology. So here we go. So we will start with knowledge as a justified true belief. There are various kinds of knowledge, knowing how to do something. For example, how to ride a bicycle, knowing someone in person, and knowing a place or a city. Although such knowledge is of epistemological interest as well, we shall focus on knowledge of propositions and refer to such knowledge using the schema S knows that P, where S stands for the subject who has knowledge and P for the proposition that is known. Our question will be, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for S to know that P? We may distinguish broadly between a traditional and a non-traditional approach to answering this question. We shall refer to them as TK and N. TK. According to TK, knowledge that P is, at least approximately, justified true belief, or JTB. False propositions cannot be known. Therefore, knowledge requires truth. A proposition 
S doesn't even believe can't be a proposition that S knows. Therefore, knowledge requires belief. Finally, S's being correct in believing that P might merely be a matter of luck. Therefore, knowledge requires a third element, traditionally identified as justification. Thus, we arrive at a tripartite analysis of knowledge as JTB, justified true belief. S knows that P, if and only if P is true and S is justified in believing that P. According to this analysis, the three conditions, truth, belief, and justification, are individually necessary and jointly sufficient for knowledge. Initially, we may say that the role of justification is to ensure that S's belief is not true merely because of luck. On that, TK and NTK are in agreement. They diverge, however, as soon as we proceed to be more specific about exactly how justification is to fulfill this role. According to TK, traditional knowledge, S's belief is that P is true not merely because of luck when it is reasonable or rational. From S's, the subject, your or my, from S's own point of view, to take P, the proposition, to be true. According to evidentialism, what makes a belief justified in this sense is the possession of evidence. The basic idea is that a belief is justified to the degree it fits S's evidence. NTK, or non-traditional knowledge, on the other hand, conceives of the role of justification differently. Its job is to ensure that S's belief has a high objective probability of truth and therefore, if true, is not true merely because of luck. One prominent idea is that this is accomplished if, and only if, a belief originates in reliable cognitive processes or faculties. This view is known as reliableism. So now I would like to just clarify a couple of points in there and then get on to what I believe is the common accepted epistemology and then what mine is. So we know where I'm working from and I will probably from that point start out with some basics that are illustrating my particular epistemology because I would really like for everybody listening to this to be able to sit down and think out and probably it would be helpful to write out what your epistemology is so that it can be tested and proven. And the reason for that is the couple of points that I do want to highlight <clears throat> before they get just lost in all the, the monologue. The one thing that they said here was you need the justified true belief to have this epistemology. Now, we'll get into the justification in a minute, but the first thing they talk about is false propositions cannot be known. So, if you have a proposition... 
and it can be proven false through evidence or be due to unreliability, then you don't have a JTB, a justified true belief, because a false proposition cannot be known. The other point they bring up is your belief. Uh, they say a proposition that you do not believe can't be a proposition that you know, which should it should seem it should seem pretty obvious, right? If uh, if I don't believe that there are purple Amazon women on the dark side of the moon, I refuse to believe that that that's even a possibility. Then it cannot be known because I refuse to believe it. If someone can show evidence or something very reliable that would convince a reasonable person that that in fact was true and I still didn't believe it, then we're getting into uh, my thought process or my reasoning being bad. So you can't know something that you just don't believe. You have to have truth. You have to have belief. Now the justification part You'll, you'll notice that the two points of justification brought up, you're going to, you're going to hear or see about everywhere that anybody is arguing for something. If people believe something, <clears throat> they're going to believe that it's true. People do not believe things that are false intentionally. So if somebody believes something, they're going to believe it is also true, and they are going to use evidentialism and reliabilism to argue their beliefs. Anybody who has, for instance, anybody who has listened to, let's say, Eric Dubay's 200 proofs that the earth is not a globe, he uses evidentialism and reliabilism. The reliability of your senses, the senses of of others in general, evidence concerning the math and physics that we have been told compared to what we can observe, the reliability of the witnesses that tell us certain things to be so. There were three guys back in 69 who claimed that they went to the moon. However, we have seen over the years that those three men do not prove to be reliable witnesses. So you're going to see it all the time, especially if, if you should listen to or watch a debate. The debaters are going to be using evidence and reliability. So that being said, and not getting to the Gettier problem, and I believe it's pronounced Gettier or Gettier, it's French, either which way, G-E-T-T-I-E-R. The Gettier problem is, it is something that requires gauging the uh, situation a little bit. I don't think that's going to be necessary right now. Um, however, I do want to start with giving my impression based on the my whole history of being raised in churches, being told things that the Bible said that I had to find out later on when I actually read it myself, it did not say, cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible. Then you have to define the word cleanliness, too. 
and see if you could actually prove that those principles were in the Bible. But that's not in the Bible. Where I really encountered, because for, for a lot of years, to be honest with you, I got taken in by the, the fly-by-night emotionalist evangelists that would often come through. Uh, let's see, I spent the first... The first five years or so going to real hardcore Pentecostal church slash school. Uh, then after my parent, well, and we didn't really go to a church, not steadily at all, for, for a few years. Then after my parents got divorced, my dad started taking me to an AOG, Assemblies of God. So that's basically charismania for old people. And then... So I, I drop, I, you know, after that, those those crazy evangelists coming through, trying to put notches on their belt, you know. They got this many people at this podunk church to make a confession for Christ. Well, you know, I saw through it. I saw through the people. And I really didn't want to have anything to do with it. Now, this is not the Bible. This is churches and church people. The Bible was a whole different story, but as I, I matured, and when I finally was through with trying to utterly destroy myself about six years ago or so, I was introduced to something called historicism, which I won't spend too much time on. However, Historicism, as a way to interpret eschatology in the Bible, or end times things in the Bible, and this was precipitated by a very honest question that I had, that I asked, at that time, God, that's who he was to me, was still God, about these Jews, and were they really his people? <laughs> And I'm sure that's a question that anybody who has come to understand what the Jews are like, what they do, their history, has probably had to ask. So, at the time, historicism seemed to answer a lot of questions. I thought it answered all of them. It didn't. There were a lot of chinks in that armor. And what I eventually had to do was abandoned studies on the English text in books using the English text because I saw all of these problems. I would see guys like, just to name drop, because I'm a big fan of name dropping, to see guys like Doug Batchelor really use the same techniques of sophistry and casuistry to prove his own sectarian beliefs to see Walter Veith do this to read the the greats of historicism do this was disenchanting and I realized that I wasn't going to be able to understand this stuff and it basically concerning the way that historicists understand end times events the way they understand the Bible the way they interpret it uh, I wasn't going to be able to work all of that out as far as how much of it was true and false without understanding the language. The thing is, I, I had it in my mind that I needed to understand Koine Greek. And after working in that for some time, 
I realized that I really couldn't understand what I was trying to figure out in the New Testament, or let's just say all of the Greek terminology really didn't uh, amount to much if I didn't know its source texts from the so-called Old Testament, the former scriptures, the early scriptures. And so I realized I needed to understand Hebrew. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. There had been uh, a few times in the in the past that I had tried to sit down and put a, this serious effort into learning Hebrew as it is presented to us from, well, we'll get into the whole story of the Masoretes soon. And every time I did, of course, I didn't know how to articulate it at that time, but there was always an overwhelming sense, like with every other thing I had been forced to learn in school, in church buildings, every miserable intellectual pursuit. It was the same. It felt the same. It felt like I was being totally BS. So I gave that up two times in the past. Now the last time I did it, what I decided to do was research and understand all I could about it. Because I wanted to know why it was that to learn a language, because I have learned languages at least in part in the past, so I understand that there is going to be a certain amount of rudimentary essentials that you need to know and understand to learn a language. You know, you need to know the so-called alphabet. You need to know the names of the letters or symbols in the so-called alphabet. You probably need to know uh, things about grammar, structure, syntax, how that particular language goes about communication, at least the rudiments of it. So that's what I set out to do. Where I ended up was reading a story. And I use that term very liberally today. I ended up reading a story. In fact, I read a handful of stories about these figures called the Masoretes, who, according to the stories, standardized the text by adding their dots and dashes all over the text because they claimed that, for one thing, Hebrew had no vowels. For another thing, they claimed that the the rules that they were adding through those dots and dashes, which are called nikud, or uh, as they call the plural nikudot, they say that uh, they have handed those things down, the, the ways to pronounce them, and the ways to understand the words, so the lexicography the literal definitions of the words and the way they work and how you can use them had been handed down through tradition. And something I realized was that, first off, there was really no proof of this. We had to just take the Jews' word for it. But in addition, I also realized that the Masoretes, if they did in fact 
exist and do this terrible thing to the text. These were Christ-hating rabbis. You see, to be a rabbi is to hate Christ, or in the least, because I know there are guys running around out there who claim to be Christians and rabbis. <laughs> Don't know how that works. But in the least, being a rabbi in the least is disrespecting Christ because of what he said. Don't be called what rabbi. And we might talk about the word rabbi and where it comes from, what it means. There's going to be so much we're going to talk about. However, so that's what I was required to swallow, to push forward with learning Masoretic Hebrew, a very complex and inconsistent language. Now, fortunately, during this time, I also came across uh, one gatekeeper and one very emotionally uh, off-kilter other person who I don't think, in retrospect, was a gatekeeper whatsoever. However, this other person actually did me a great service by filtering out a lot of the junk from the gatekeeper, and I realized that there was a lot to Hebrew that we hadn't examined, that, that nobody really was examining. So the more I looked into it, the more I found out that there were far older characters that looked a bit different, that the other thing is today's Hebrew has been stylized after a different language too. So the more I kept looking and digging, the more uh, I realized that all of the precepts uh, that Hebrew was based on were assumptions. They weren't concretely provable. And so because of that, that, that is what led me to testing the language in the way that I, I do, hunting down uh, every possible example of older Hebrew, whether it was claimed to be scratched on rocks or on parchment or paper or in Jewish encyclopedias, it didn't matter. Finding what is the, should be the basic look of the character and then beginning to test it grammatically. After doing this and spending now a couple of years doing that, that's, if, if I'm not working my slave job, I'm spending time testing Hebrew, or what I call obri, because when you take away the Masoretes' claims of pronunciation, and their nikidot, and uh, their traditions and lexicography, I believe what you end up with is a language that is very much the early predecessor to Germanic languages, with very few variances. And one of those variances is instead of Hebrew, as they call it, it would be four characters. The first one would be the equivalent of our modern O, B, R, Y, Obri. From if you're white and northern or western European, Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, it would be your great ancestor, Ober, not Eber or Heber. You can actually see this in a number of names that are Germanic and Dutch. They have actually retained that pronunciation all these years. 
You can, you can see it with names like uh, Obermeyer, Oberholzer, any of those names with Ober in them. Now there are a number with Eber and Heber as well. That is a deviation. We don't want to we don't want to deviate. We want to go back as uh, Zephaniah 3:10, I believe it is. And I want to double check that because this is part of my case here and this is going to illustrate why it is so important that that we do this, that we pay attention to what the language is telling us apart from all of those perversions of the Masora. Zephaniah 3.9 is an eschatological passage that says, and this is in the, the, the King James, most of the quotes unfortunately are going to have to be from the King James. If you like the poetry of King James, that's great, but if you're after accuracy, well, no English translation is going to be on. Let's just say that. Zephaniah 3.9, For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of Yahweh, to serve him with one consent. And yes, I did add in Yahweh, because I don't use Lord, I don't use God. If it's God, it's going to be Aliyim. If it's Lord, it's going to be Yahweh. If it's Lord with the lowercase o-r-d, it's going to be Adani. So, now that I've said that, what I'd like to do is get back to this formula concerning epistemology. And what I believe, based on all that I've observed, done, and studied, what I believe the common epistemology to be is... And remember, the, the formula for epistemology, or how we can know something, how we can have a JTB, justified, true belief. What it is necessary is that S, the subject, is believing that a proposition is a justified, true belief. In fact, they said, when S knows that P... I mean, that's as simple as it gets. An S knows that P. So I'm going to give you what I believe is the... I think this is the basic belief that most of us have been working from for as long as we have uh, claimed to be a Christian or a Bible believer. Or if you're CI, an Israelite. A redeemed Israelite. However you want to put it. So basically insert your name here. I could, I could just insert me, except that I don't believe this anymore. So let's just say <clears throat> today the common Christian or Bible believer is the S subject, and the proposition is, so the Christian or Bible believer knows that, and here's the proposition, the English translations of the Bible and their respective source language counterparts are on average and in varying degrees truthful, reliable, and accurately instructional so that the individual reader may know and understand all the information contained therein and therefore be able to productively apply it. So I'm going to do that one more time and within the structure of this epistemological 
equation that I got from Stanford EDU. So today, the typical Christian or Bible believer knows that English translations of the Bible and their respective source language counterparts, so the Koine Greek, the a uh, few Hebrew manuscripts, the Samaritan Pentateuch, and if you want to get into Aramaic versions of the so-called Old Testament, are, on average and in varying degrees, truthful, reliable, and accurately instructional so that the individual reader may know and understand all the information contained therein and therefore be able to productively apply it. That, I believe, is what most people who profess to believe and try to practice the Bible have as their epistemology. And they believe that they do indeed have justifiably true beliefs according to that. I'm going to try to illustrate to you over and over and over again. I'm going to successfully illustrate this to you. It's not going to be uh, a try and fail, and I'm not sure if I'm going to or not. I wouldn't even be wasting my time or your time with this podcast if I wasn't able to prove this. But what I'm going to prove to you is that that proposition is, is not a justifiable true statement. Yes, it was a complex statement, which is why I read it twice. But I believe that most people who believe the Bible would pretty much agree with that statement. If they didn't agree with that statement, I would think there would be something wrong. Now, you can, you can listen to it and you can fine-tune it if you want to here and there. Add a little bit here, maybe take a little bit there. But I think in general, that's a very fair statement concerning what most Christian or Bible believers perceive about the Bible. What I intend to do, as I was saying, was prove that it's not correct. Now, if you're listening to this and you happen to be an atheist, or you simply don't believe the Bible to be true, accurate, uh, the Word of God, inspired, divine all of that, I'm not going to be proving you right either. I'm not on anyone's side here. I'm on the side of the truth. What I'm trying to say is that no, I don't believe that the person who believes the Bible as it exists, and it doesn't have to be an English translation, it could be a German translation, it could be a Spanish translation, Okay, the problem, uh, of course, is the root, the texts used to derive these translations from. I don't believe that sufficient evidence and reliability exists for the Christian or Bible believer to adequately understand all the things that the Bible is saying to us concerning where it took place, concerning culture and environment, technology, eschatology, which is extremely important, messianic passages and prophecy in general. The reason for that is because 
I don't just believe, but I will show as this podcast goes forward how unreliable certain types, certain families of words are and certain concepts that we have been made to believe via the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. I'm not really mentioning the Samaritan Pentateuch in there or uh, the Targums or any kind of obscure lesser partial text in that, nor am I bringing apocryphal, pseudepigraphal writings into this because at this point I am concentrating essentially on core. I know that there exists, for instance, with the Septuagint, which is claimed by many proponents of the Septuagint that it is actually far, far older than the Masoretic texts because of when the Masoretic text was produced. Therefore, in many cases, they tend to have a great deal of trust in apocryphal writings. And that's something that is going to have to be on the back burner. There may be times when I comment on apocryphal, but just because it's old or just because it's been coupled with other books of the Bible that are more trustworthy doesn't make it trustworthy. And now, no, I didn't just say that all the apocryphal works are untrustworthy. All I was doing was making a statement and explaining a little bit why I'm not bringing the apocrypha or works like that into it or lesser texts. Mostly, I'm going to be focusing on the Masoretic and their there is going to be use of the Septuagint as well. Of course, I will be examining the, the mythos of the Septuagint and Koine Greek as a concept and the usage of it, the terminology utilized in it, transliterations, and so on and so forth. The reason that I said that neither will the issues that I bring up prove the basic statement of epistemology that I formulated for the average Bible believer. Neither will it prove their mindset concerning the Bible, nor somebody who has the inverse or opposite mindset, that it is all wrong, that it is all phony. What I'm trying to say is that neither the, the the guy on the one side of the spectrum that entirely believes it, nor the guy on the other side of the spectrum that entirely doesn't believe it, neither one of them are able to prove their belief. Neither one of them has a fully justifiable, true belief when it comes to the Bible. The reason for this is because both of them share a faulty, a fallible epistemology because whatever their opinion of the Bible is, it is based on bad language texts and I am specifically referring to English and I am familiar enough with some of the translations made in other languages and how they were derived 
enough to know that they're not getting much better in those languages either because of what they're based on. And they are based heavily on the Masoretic texts and the Septuagint. And the reason that neither side is going to be able to have a justified true belief is because there is such a great amount of the vocabulary, the lexicon of the Bible, that in its current form, Hebrew or Koine Greek, is not provable. And at the same time, I can prove that a great percentage of it is either incorrect on its face or should not be trusted due to unreliability. Now, without getting into the mythos of the Septuagint, I'm going to illustrate to you why, even though uh, I admit that the Septuagint has a number of passages that, let's just say, translations based on the Masoretic text, and there's not much out there as far as Masoretic text when they say the Masoretic text, you have a text that will generally be referred to as the Masoretic text, <clears throat> and then you have a text that's referred to as uh, BHS or Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. And there is virtually nil uh, variance between those. So it's, it's, not, it's not even noteworthy. So you can just say the Masoretic text without having to worry about, like when you say the New Testament Greek, the sheer amount of variance in, in, the, in New Testament Greek manuscripts. It's amazing. However, what I'm going to do is just give you just a quick taste. This is just, this, this is really a very, very small drop in the bucket. This is what you will see in spades as time goes on. What I'm going to do is give you some examples of why, even though there are variations between the Septuagint and the Masoretic, and some of those variations are far more significant than others. And I do also agree with the number of Septuagint proponents that it's just the way they put it, I think, is incorrect. What they do is they point out how often in the New Testament the speakers or authors are quoting text from the so-called Old Testament that sounds far more like the Septuagint text or more closely matches the text of the Septuagint. And of course, in certain cases, there are even verses that are not in the Masoretic that are in the Septuagint and actually vice versa. However, I have ample reason to believe that the Septuagint is in fact just a version of Greek text, Koine Greek text, by the way, which is also the sort uh, or variety of Greek, as it's called, that is used for the New Testament, whether it is, is minuscule or, or, or majuscule is irrelevant at this point in time. <clears throat> the Septuagint, as we know it, as far as I'm concerned, and as I said, this will be amply illustrated in the future, but just a quick drop in the bucket right now, 
is simply just a Koine Greek copy, translation, from what was already a Masoretic polluted text. For instance, let's start with Strong's H155 Adrat, which Strong's gives Adaref as a pronunciation. Now, what's really interesting is the patterns. You want to look for the patterns that both current translations based off the Masoretic and the Septuagint follow. So if you have a Brenton's and a KJV, that makes it very easy. If you can, keep an interlinear near you as well. You need to study with some sort of interlinear so you can at least look at the so-called Hebrew and make sure that all of these things are lining up. So what happens is if you just look at the quick uh, Strong's definition of H155 Adrat, you'll see that they give as the first definition glory or cloak, and then sub-definition A, glory, splendor, magnificence, B, mantle cloak made of fur or fine material, and prophet's garment. Okay. Uh, here's what's interesting is, again, this is a drop in the bucket. There's thousands of words that can be compared. However, interestingly enough, both the translations from the Masoretic and Brenton's happens to translate Adrat as mantle. And for instance, 1 Kings 19.13 and 19, both of them just so happened to translate it as garment. In Zechariah 13.4, both deviate. And this is the same word. Both deviate. In Ezekiel 17.8, the King James, goodly. The Septuagint, great. Both deviate. In Zechariah 11.3, the KJV, glory. The Septuagint, greatness. Both deviate. Where they could have stuck with, and it's mostly translated as um, mantle. Both deviate in Jonah 3.6, the KJV robe, the Septuagint raiment. But there's another Strong's word, H853. This one's really interesting because it's actually one of the most obscure <laughs> yet commonly found words uh, in the early scriptures or so-called Old Testament. And it is at. Now you're going to get a lot of definitions for at and it's broken up into a number of entries because <laughs> sometimes they want to use it in certain ways. Uh, sometimes they want to leave it invisible because of the way it translates and how they don't have any good explanation for this word. But for H853, that appearance of at, the only thing that Strong's is going to give you is a sign of the definite direct object, not translated in English, but generally preceding and indicating the accusative, which is not altogether accurate because it is oftentimes translated into English. Uh, <clears throat> let me go to it in my 
E-Sword, real quick. H-853. E-Sword letting me know that I didn't have to hit the Enter key. All right. So, <laughs> it will give you, uh, if you use E-Sword, <clears throat> and you use the, uh, it's called the KJC. It's the entire so-called Old Testament concordance. And <clears throat> it will give you a given word and how many appearances it has in a particular form. So it appears as what 46 times, even 25 times, whom 19, who's 10, whoever 3, who 2, everyone. Now, some of these are a bit misleading because it's not actually appearing as that word. It appears just before that particular word. A good example of that is in Genesis 45.2. They say that it is used as wept once, which is not correct, actually. Uh, the word for wept is in there, and it simply appears just for it. The interesting thing is that when it does get translated, and sometimes it gets translated as what? The really interesting thing is the sheer amount of times that both the KJV and other Masoretic-derived texts translate that word or, or make it appear as the word what and just how many times that Brenton's does as well. The Septuagint does as well. Genesis 41.25, they both translate it as what? Exodus 4.15 and many others. Same thing with whom, when they make it appear as whom, Exodus 33, 12 and 19, Leviticus 25, 55, 27, 24, Joshua 2, 10, etc., etc. On or upon, 1 Kings 16, 24. Now that's an interesting coincidence that they would both have it appear and that it would be so similar on in the one case, upon in the other, and Numbers 4.8, in the case of KJV, in and Breton, into. Now, that was just that was just a couple of words I was able to pick out just from a quick scroll while I paused the audacity. Something else that, because some people might listen to that and say, well, that's not, that's not, that's, well, there's way, as I said, way more that I'm not going to prove all at this time. I, I couldn't. I actually couldn't entirely illustrate all of the similarities between the two, even in one one to two hour show. Something that's really interesting is when you get into species of words, of animals, of plants, flora and fauna is one of the easiest things to be changed from what the original source words were meant to be into something else because it's very difficult to prove things one way or the other. So, <clears throat> if, if two translations were coming from very different mindsets and they had to figure out what birds were being named in Leviticus 11 from verses 13 through 19. And keep in mind that out of all these birds mentioned, most of them are only 
mentioned once in this passage. Uh, some of them repeated in Deuteronomy because uh, Yahweh goes over a number of the clean or unclean foods in Deuteronomy. But you're not going to see most of these enough to even begin to try to guess what animal it is, okay? So, <clears throat> let's see. Starting in verse 13, Brenton's has eagle, ossifrage, sea eagle. King James, eagle, ossifrage, and osprey, which is the sea eagle. In 14, let's see, Brenton says the vulture, kite, and King James, vulture, kite. And some of these verses are mixed around uh, from Brenton's King James, so just continuing on. All right, Brenton's has the raven and the hawk, and I see the hawk and the raven in King James. Brenton's has the sparrow, owl, seamew, I see owl, I see, see, owl, hawk we already saw, cuckoo, they say, in King James, they say hawk and night hawk. That's interesting because night raven in the Brentons. The stork, the cormorant, they're both repeating this, stork, cormorant. Um, the great owl, uh, let's see, I believe there is owl and is there a great owl. Oftentimes, Brentons uses names for these birds or different animals or plants that are actually the same as King James, but since the language was penned at different times, the terms, the words are synonymous, but they are not always the same. Okay, both have the pelican. Um, I thought both had the swan. Both have the heron, the lapwing, <clears throat> the bat. And I think I missed a few that were, again, exactly the same or synonym. But what's really interesting is when you get to verse 20. Verse 20 in the King James, based on Masoretic, All fowls that creep, going upon all four, shall be an abomination unto you. The Breton, all winged creatures that creep, which go upon four feet, are abominations to you. Now, what's so interesting about that is the structure of the sentence that both of them chose to use. However, if you actually go to the, I hate calling it Hebrew, because I don't read it in Hebrew, it's Leviticus 20. If you go there and read it, the syntax of it does not dictate that the best way to write it out in English is the way that both King James and Brentons chose to exactly shape the syntax of that verse. This sort of thing also happens again and again and again between the two. Another one is Strong's H689. Uh, this is Aku, pronounced Ako by Strong. It only has two appearances in Deuteronomy 14.5. This is the area that repeats a number of animals and actually adds some new ones, leaves some out, from Leviticus 11. So, out of only two appearances in the entire 
so-called Old Testament. Both the KJV based on the Masoretic and Brenton's based on the Septuagint agree that the Aku is wild goat in both instances. Not just goat, wild goat. Now, I could keep going for a really long time on all of these interesting translational similarities of specific nouns or objects, but I'm not because I don't have the time. However, as I go along in the future, I'm going to bring a lot more of these to light and also a number of very interesting decisions of transliteration between the Septuagint and we'll just talk about the, the mythos behind it and how it was said to have been translated and then how peculiar it is, how much phonetic similarities there are between transliterations in the Koine Greek and the Masoretic dictation of how these words should be pronounced, much less, of course, their lexicography or definition. At this point in time, though, I have to assume uh, that the, the peculiarities in the Septuagint lead me to believe that much like the New Testament, it is simply a Koine Greek translation based on a Masoretic text that was a bit better or more complete than what is being passed off as the Masoretic text today. I'll also frequently be pointing out the inordinate amount of Obri words that have, let's say that there are multiple entries of an Obri word in Strong's, the high amount of frequency in which you're going to find at least one of those with an Aramaic definition. If I didn't know any better, I would just think that one one of the other things was going on. Either the imposters that have had their hands all over these texts for so long were leaving their calling card, or honestly, it's because they didn't know Obri and they have pieced together a great deal of it themselves. Enough of it to understand enough to screw with the text, but perhaps not altogether, because, again, these people are not Hebrews. Never were. They're imposters. So it's very possible that they didn't even know the text. Something that's interesting, we have to keep in mind, too, and I think this factors heavily into a lot of the slander that's gone into the Bible and the God of the Bible, the Aliyim of the Bible, is a particularly Jewish mindset that emerges in certain ideas, in certain words used. Sometimes it boggles my mind because... And this is what leads me back to thinking that they didn't actually entirely know the language. Because there are a number of words that I've come across so far and translated based on what I understand about the glyphs being ideographic, where the words are actually more explicit, more graphically explicit, I suppose you would say, than what's been chosen 
as its translation, and yet that wasn't chosen. And being well acquainted with the perversity of Jewish writings, I would often think that they would take advantage of situations in which they could be more graphic, uh, yet they're not. So it's, uh, it's in a way sort of anomalous. I'll be continuing to talk about the striking similarities of Obri to American Sign Language in sort of form and function. Root families. This should help anyone who is actually trying to understand and work with Obri themselves. Uh, because it does all come down to root families. You're going to see these very large amounts of words that actually have the same root. Whether they have additional glyphs at the end or at the beginning, sometimes affixed glyphs. The vowels in Obri that, that are basically the counterparts to our vowels today in Germanic and English, uh, they're oftentimes affixed in words, too. Um, the really interesting phenomenon that I'll be exploring as well are what I've come to coin as complete words versus the disconnected nouns, verbs, and modifiers and so on that they've come to label these as today. Let me see if I can actually just give you one example of that real quick. Let's just take, for example, Strong's H6. It is the word Abad. Abad uh, H6 is classified as a verb. So you'll see it used as destroyed, uh, to destroy, to perish, to undo. And sometimes they, they forget themselves and use it as a noun. And, you, and you're going to see why they sometimes forget themselves and use it as a noun. It's because it, like so, so many Obri words, are what I'm currently calling complete words, maybe. I'll come up with something better. Maybe somebody who's way better at languages than me knows that that's a specific phenomenon that they can find in other languages, and there is a term for it. And you can let me know what that is. But you go to Strong's H8, and you'll see Abad again. Now it will have different Nikud that the Jews have put on it. But it's the same word. And before they put their Nikud on it, it was the same word. And of course, they have to classify it as a noun because it is a complete word. And when you, you look at how they use it, they use it as in perish as a thing, as opposed to to perish as a verb. Now, when an E is added at the end, and it's abade, they classify it as a feminine noun. And the reason for this is because that e glyph at the end changes a word from its... Well, we can use masculine and feminine to be in a building or around the vicinity of a building. If you were around the vicinity of that building, you would add the eon to the end. Whereas if you were in the building, you would not. That's the only difference. When you add the unon and you have abadun, which some might remember from Revelation 9, the king of the locusts in that imagery of Revelation 9, they say they have a king over them and his name is abadun. The funny thing is, uh, 
And then they say in Greek it would be Apollyon, which just sounds like Obri to me, since Ap is the Obri word for anger, and Olion is the Obri word for above all, and it would be the god of wrath, wouldn't it? Apollyon or war? Anyway, so we'll cover some of that too, because there's such a large amount of words in the New Testament that are called Greek or Koine Greek, which are in fact just Obri transliterations, or uh, or they're at least rooted in Obri transliterations. For instance, Ecclesia. The Greeks, and this is all hearsay, I, I can't validate any of these stories about Greek or the uh, the various dialects of Greek. But anyways, they have so many suffixes that they add on to words, and sometimes prefixes that they, they add on to words, uh, roots that they've picked up in other places, that Ecclesia is actually most likely from the Obri equivalent word Kel. Um, those are only a couple I can think of off the top of my head because I don't have my current workings of Greek words that are actually Obri words transliterated. Um, so, one thing that I'm not saying is that the scriptures are untrustworthy. I don't think they're untrustworthy. And I, I think it's probably fair to, to articulate what my epistemology is. I would have to say, remember that, that uh, formula for epistemology is that S knows P to B, and then they say in that is that they know P to B if and only if P is a justified true belief. All right, well, I know that uh, the Bible, meaning a majority of the current books in use, is quite obviously obscured via tampering with our understanding of languages, uh, being so-called Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, in the sense that although enough of its true form had to be left intact for reasons of coherence, many of the precise words of specific nature have been tampered with. The exact reasons for this tampering and specific nature of word changes is not yet known, although anyone familiar with who has been the predominant linguists and translators of most languages used today can readily speculate on the possibilities. The root language used by the authors of the Bible, so-called Hebrew, but probably Obery, was designed with a built-in safeguard, namely the characters utilized in Obery are symbolic and ideographic in nature. This allows for us to gain an understanding outside of Masoretic, Koine Greek, Aramaic, etc. All current arguments concerning the Bible are, in part, moot until Obery can be understood. And I want to impress upon you that, again, I'm not coming to you as authoritative here. I'm a guy who is dedicated to finding the truth in these things. That's it. Nothing more. For anybody who has either read the articles that I've done concerning geography or uh, listened to the audios in, in which I narrate the articles, a good deal of the knowledge that I gained within those articles was gained via studying the Bible through Obery. 
The tools that I have, some are done, some are currently still in development. Any that I have, I'm glad to share with anyone. Most of them work better if you open them up and use them in a word processing program like LibreOffice or Microsoft Office. For anybody who wants a copy of, say, the Strong's List in Obrey as it currently stands, and I do change the words as I go because there are so many uh, mislistings by Strong's. They will list a word as one thing, but it will appear as something else. Uh, I'm hoping that by the time everything is said and done, we won't even need a Strong's Concordance anymore. And that's the whole point, is having a universal, unmistakable understanding of the language. Because once that's achieved, I would think the only argument left is whether or not you want to believe the unmistakable message uh, contained within the scriptures and apply them. No more vast denominations, which I can't believe I still hear people justifying them. There's nothing justifiable about them. If there's no unity, and there's in fact that much disunity, uh, there's something wrong with them. And there's nothing honorable about flying your banner under one of error. That that doesn't make for justifiable unity. So here forward, I hope everybody enjoys these as I'm able to produce them. As I said, I have already slotted time to make one of these each week so I can at least inform you on how I go about studying things, the stuff I find, how interesting it is. There won't always be definitive answers to these things, but if you're anything like me, you're going to see the great amount of potential, even in areas that I don't yet have answers for. And since I, I haven't come up with answers to why uh, these glyphs are what they are, and how exactly they're used, and what exactly they mean. And not in every instance, some glyphs more than others. Um, hopefully I will find out a lot more as I go. Maybe some of you will help me to figure out what these glyphs mean by how they are being used. So until the next one, I hope everybody has a good week. Oh,